So that's page 90, starting at verse 16. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross. He went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, They divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you very much for reading, and we're going to have a bit of a think about that passage and what it means, but um, we're going to start with a video. It's a a track by a band called Elbow. Hands up if you know Elbow. Am I really old-fashioned here? Yeah, Yeah, okay. Um, Yeah, so not too bad, Uh, but uh, you'll follow the gist as, uh, as we hear it play to us. Thank you. Sorry again to interrupt. There's a great guitar solo that was just about to play there, if you know the track. Uh, But that track, it's called uh, Dexter and Sinister, and um, it's by the band, as I say, Elbow. Now, Elbow, uh, I'm a fan of Elbow because they are just masters at capturing uh, the everyday in a way that's beautiful and full of wonder. 
But this track, I'm sure you picked up on this, is a lot different. It's a lot grittier, a lot darker. The optimism isn't there as in their other work. Of course, it speaks of a loss, doesn't it, of belief. I don't know Jesus anymore. And because of that, it speaks of a world where it feels like we've lost our way. They call the days at the end there faith-free, hope-free, charity-free. Now, I realize that might not be the gloom that we all feel, uh, but I guess it does speak for a lot of us in our culture today, doesn't it? Let's be honest with ourselves. For the most part, we don't know Jesus anymore. It doesn't feel like faith matters. But we also wonder, don't we, what's going on with our world? Where's our world heading? What's our life about? Where, if hope, uh, where does hope come from? And our passage this morning, it answers those questions. It may not be immediately obvious, but I think as we look at this in detail, we see answers to those questions. It shows us, in fact, that we can know Jesus but perhaps we don't get to know him in the way we think we know him. And because of what happens in this event, it changes our world forever so that these days are very much far from hope-free, faith-free, and charity-free. Now, why is that? Well, we're going to see three ideas in this passage. First of all, that what looks like defeat is, in fact, victory. Now, what looks like failure is success, and what looks like loss is gain. And if you've got one of the handouts and you fancy writing some notes, um, please feel free, the, the points are on there. See, first of all then, what looks like defeat is, in fact, victory. See, many people in our culture today, they echo those words, we don't know Jesus anymore, I don't know Jesus anymore, because he just doesn't feel that knowable. See, the Bible claims Jesus is powerful, yet we don't see his power visibly demonstrated. The Bible claims he's a king, and yet we don't see his rule. But this passage shows us that Jesus is those things, but not in the way we might expect. See, when you look at this passage and think about it for the first time, it is surprising, isn't it, that there's so much detail on his death. I quite like reading biographies or watching biographies on film. And uh, their death is normally the closing part or one paragraph at the end of the book. But John doesn't seem to have got the memo about biographies. He's written pages upon pages of Jesus' death. And we're just looking at one part of those very final moments. Now, why does John go into this sort of detail? Well, because these details really matter. Because running right through this event is an irony in Jesus' death. He looks defeated, but in fact, he is being shown to be victorious. And John does that by showing us a couple of details in slow motion. We're not going to look at all the details. Um, you know, I'd love to, but you'll be here all day. Uh, we're going to look at a couple of details in slow motion. See, first of all, there's a detail about this sign on the cross. See, Pilate who's the Roman governor at the time, interesting historical detail there, he hands Jesus to be crucified. And crucifixion was the worst punishment you could inflict in the Roman world. It was so brutal 
that no Roman citizen could receive it. Of course, there was the physical agony that the victim was laid down on a horizontal beam and then uh, their arms were nailed in and then they were hoisted up. And it was a cruel death because it gave you hope as you could pull up on your arms and breathe but then you would slump back down and start to suffocate. And you would go through that cycle hour after hour after hour. And then there was, of course, the shame. You were stripped naked, you were on show, and it was a clear demonstration of the Roman might as you look pathetic, hung up for the public to mock for hours. And yet, in this humiliation... There's all sorts of details that show us that Jesus is completely in control. See, the first detail, as I mentioned, is this sign on the cross. Uh, now, it's not unusual to have a sign on the cross, and obviously Pilate's using it as a bit of a joke, the king of the Jews. But he does something unusual. He does a kind of Google Translate on this sign. Have a look at verse 20, he, uh, that little sentence 20 there on page 90. Uh, he says there that um, the sign is written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. Now, Aramaic was like the everyday tongue, uh, what people spoke in. Uh, Latin was the language of the army, and um, Greek was the kind of world trade language at that time, but like English today. And so as Jesus hangs on the cross, he does so under this declaration in all these languages that he is king of the world. Now, of course, Pilate doesn't quite know what he's doing. He's mocking. But he does speak more than he knows. Because by this action, he inadvertently declares Jesus' kingship to the whole known world. And there's another slow-motion detail in the lottery that takes place uh, between the soldiers. Now, soldiers... Uh, they would take the victim out, and basically the victim would be theirs. And so their clothes were fair game. But there's something unusual that happens. They come to Jesus' garment, and they find out that it's made from one piece of fabric. And so they say in verse 24, let's not tear it, let's do rock, paper, scissors for it, or something similar. And um, why is that so significant? Well, look at what John says about it. He gives a hyperlink to the Old Testament in verse 24. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. And then John says, this happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Now those two sentences there right at the end are a hyperlink back to a song written by King David. And this was one of the most famous royal songs in the Old Testament, a bit like kind of God Save the Queen. You know exactly who it's about. It's not about you or me. It's about you know, the Queen. Um, and um, it was a bit like that. People would know this song. And yet David is suffering in this song. And in fact, he quotes these very words, they divided my clothes among them, they cast lots for my garment. In other words, Jesus is dying in a way that King David spoke of. See, far from this being an act just for the soldiers to gain his clothes, this is a demonstration of his kingship. See, 
all these details show us that on the one level, it looks like a defeat, doesn't it? It looks like game over. The Romans have won. But actually, detail after detail shows us that actually this is a declaration of Jesus' kingship. Now, it's worth saying, like, you know, if it was just those two details, maybe you wouldn't be persuaded. And I get that. But it's worth just saying, we, we've geared up to the whole of um, this declaration in the whole of John. And just turn back uh, to chapter 12, and I'll just show you a little example of that. Chapter 12, it's on page um, 63. And look at that little sentence 12. The next day, the great crowds that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches, went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it, as it is written, another hyperlink, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. See, everything about Jesus and everything he does speaks of his kingship. But here's the thing. It doesn't work in the way we expect a king to come. It doesn't come on a horse or a chariot. He comes on a donkey. He doesn't rule in supremacy. He dies on a cross. See, here's the thing we've got to understand if we're looking into Christianity. God doesn't work on the same economic system as you and me do. See, we expect that Jesus, to be king, well, you would see a crown, you would see a throne. But actually, John shows us, no, it's a cross and a crown of thorns. And coming back to Elbow, the, the reason, I think, for a lot of us, we, we say those words, I don't know Jesus anymore, is because he doesn't kind of fit our predefined categories. He doesn't seem powerful. He doesn't seem like he's able to help me because he doesn't kind of fit how I expect him to fit. But here's the thing. Strength is not seen in the way we see strength. It's seen in weakness. Supremacy is not seen in the way we see supremacy. It's seen in service. Victory is not seen in the way we see victory. It is seen in defeat. But even if Jesus is king, and this is his identity, I mean... Why is that relevant to you and me? Well, secondly, we see here that what looks like failure is, in fact, success. See, at the end of the day, Jesus might be a king, but he still died. And it still looks like the mission has failed. But actually, these last moments of Jesus' life show us the opposite. They show us that it was a great success. Now, why on earth is this death a success? Well, look at the final words that are uttered uh, from sentence 28. Yeah, we're on page 91, uh, if you've lost track. Sorry about the flicking, but page 91. That verse 28. Later, knowing that everything had been finished, just look out for the repeated word here, knowing that everything had been finished so that Scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it and put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it up to Jesus' lips. When he received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed up his head and gave up his spirit. Do you see that repeated idea? Finished, fulfilled, 
it is finished. Now, Jesus doesn't mean by that, I'm finished. He's saying, it is finished. And the question is, what is it that's finished? Well, there's a clue in that last event that happens before he gives up his spirit. He asks for a drink. Now, on one level, you think, that's not surprising. He's been hung out in the hot sun for hours. The blood loss is unimaginable. Of course he's going to need a drink. But John says, no, he asks for a drink to fulfill the scriptures. And then this jar of wine vinegar is given to him. Now, if we know our Old Testaments, and um, John kind of flags us up to this by talking about the scripture, that again is another hyperlink back to a king song. It's a song where David talks about being given sour wine to drink. But it's also how it gets to Jesus' lips, which is um, fulfilling scripture. See, notice the plant that's mentioned. It's a hyssop plant. Now, hyssop's a really unusual plant because it's not a stick that's very strong. It's not the sort of stick you would give to your dog or the kids would look for on a walk. Um, it's this sort of stick. Um, so uh, it looks like this. Probably not the choice. But the, here's the thing. The hyssop was hugely, hugely symbolic. It's a bit like if we said to someone, an English rose or a Scottish thistle. It, it kind of contains imagery and symbolism. See, the hyssop plant was a bit like a holy paintbrush used by priests. They would use it to paint water or blood on things and symbolically clean them. And the first time this came into the mainstream was back in um, the book of Exodus, where the people of Egypt were going to be judged by having their firstborn killed. And God said to all his people, everyone who takes the blood of a lamb and uses the hyssop plant to paint it on the doorposts was safe. And here's John's way of saying, here is that event happening in 3D. Jesus is fulfilling that pattern. He's the blood that is going to keep us safe. Now, maybe you think to yourself, Rob, you're clutching at straws. There's a big coincidence. Well, look back over the page, at page 89. Because here's what John tells us in sentence 14. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. He points out that this is the Passover festival. And we saw last week, didn't we, if you were here, I think I've got it, no, I haven't got it there, um, back in uh, John chapter 3, that Jesus said, the Son of Man, oh yeah, just as Moses lifted up, thank you, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. And John the Baptist says this, sorry, desk, thank you. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. See, here's the thing. It's not that the mission has failed. The mission succeeded because Jesus has come and he's been lifted up. He dies as the Lamb that takes away the sins of the world. See, Jesus came into our world to heal that great divorce that we've got with our Creator. And as he dies in this way, he says to us, it is finished. It is done. Your sins are forgiven. 
The judgment that might otherwise come your way is taken away. The relationship you've got with your creator that has been broken is now fixed. See, because Jesus died, because he said it is finished, what looks like a failure is in fact a success. It's a really chilling verse in that elbow song. It's where they speak about being a dog for the end of days. And then they go on to say, an endless sleep is awaiting me. What a tragic picture. But it is remarkably honest, isn't it, about what happens when we know there's no hope beyond our world. But sadly, it misses the irony. Because the fact that Jesus became a dog for the end of days, the fact that he went to his death, the fact that he said it is finished means that we need not face an eternal sleep. Instead, receive eternal life. So Jesus is king. Jesus succeeds in his mission. But what difference does that make to you and me? Well, finally, we see here that what looks like loss is, in fact, gain. See, what Jesus achieves at this point isn't just for the future, although it is. See, something else happens just before he dies, which changes the world forever. So you have a look at sentence 26. Just before um, we get to that talk of finishing, he says, uh, when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. And then from that time on, the disciple took her into his home. And maybe you think to yourself, why is that significant? Well, what Jesus utters there is, in fact, the way you would adopt someone in the ancient world. So if you were to adopt someone, you would say, you are my daughter, or you are my son. And then from that point on, that would be legally binding. And now Jesus does that uh, about his mother. So that from that point on, that time, that hour, literally, the disciple took her into his home. Now, why does this matter? Well, on one level, it's remarkable, isn't it? That Jesus died there in physical agony, and yet... He provides for his mother. But even more than that, it speaks of something even more significant. See, as Jesus dies, he establishes a new family. A family not based on blood ties or connection, but on their relationship to him. See, nothing links this disciple to Mary other than they both are there at Jesus' feet. And it is a demonstration of what Jesus accomplishes now and will continue forever. In another gospel, Jesus says this, Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. So you notice the change Jesus brings here is not just for the future, it is for the future, but it starts now by gaining brothers and mothers and sisters. And here is a picture, the first fruits of that work. Now, I know the church has got some very, very big problems, and I know the church doesn't get everything right, and we certainly don't, 
and the wider church doesn't as well. But for all its faults, let's just say, I can honestly say there's nothing like it. Now, I've not been a fan of the church my whole life. I was pretty anti the church uh, for the first 21 years of my life. But I remember as I became a Christian, as I became persuaded of this, it was remarkable that I inherited a family as well. I remember going to a church for the first time in London and being invited over afterwards to this couple. I think that at the time they seemed really old. They were about to turn 30. It was incredible. And um, I thought to myself, look at me. I'm growing up, kind of hanging out uh, with these nearly 30-year-olds. And they would invite me back just to spend time, even being invited to the 30th birthday. They didn't know me. I mean, I was just this kid, really. And as I joined the church, I started finding that I was talking to people I would never talk to in any other um, world. I mean, all my friends were the similar age to me. But yet I was starting to talk to elderly people and finding out what their life was like, and they were starting to care about me. Do you know, I I met a baby for the first time since my sister had grown up. It was very, very strange. But that is what the church is like. It doesn't bind itself on other ties. It is bound by this shared identity in Jesus. See, what's fascinating about that Elbow song, and what really gets to me, is that it mourns the loss of hope in our world. Whether they're right or not, you can argue with them about that afterwards. But they do go on to say this, don't they? That actually it's a hope-free, a faith-free, charity-free world. And to be honest, I can see why they say that. Because our world hasn't really got a solid ground for getting charity, for getting hope, for getting faith. Now, of course, we say to one another, let's love, not hate. Let's do the right thing. But events in Eastern Europe over the last month have shown us how weak that can feel. And people have very different interpretations, don't they, of what doing the right thing is. But here's a reason to love that is totally different. It's not to earn brownie points to get into heaven. It's not to be seen as virtuous. It is to love because we've been loved in this way. Because Jesus has been generous to us, we are generous to others. Because Jesus has given himself for us in his death, we can give ourselves to others. And because Jesus has won for us eternal life, we can use this life as a spare life to devote it to the service of others. See, what looks like the loss of a son, what looks like the brokenness of a family is in fact the start of a great gain of the church. As we close, I guess the question off the back of this is what do we make of this event? See, do we see defeat or do we see victory? Do we see failure or do we see success? Or do we see loss or do we see gain? Now, when I was growing up, there was this fad of, um, everyone remember this, the kind of magic eye? Um, you're not going to listen to anything I say now. Uh, but magic eye, if you, um, if you get it, you get a, you know, the satisfaction of getting it at the end. Um, but um, this was a, the, the big fad. Now, youngsters, ask your parents. Because um, the idea was that it looks like a chaotic mess, but as you look through the picture, I don't know how you do it, but there's some magic and it kind of, an image appears. Now, I know you're not listening. I'm going to turn it off. Sorry. (laughs) 
And the question is, what do we see when we see the cross? Do we see the magic art, the kind of complete mess, chaos, tragedy? Or do we see something else through the picture? Do we see the moment of victory, the moment of success, the moment of gain? Now, I know lots of us are visiting over these weeks, and it is great to have you with us, and you've probably got lots of things to think through. That's okay. We want to help you with that as a church. But for those of us who can see the true significance, we can say we do know Jesus. An endless sleep does not await us, and these days need not be faith-free, hope-free, and charity-free. Over to you, Caroline. Now we've got some of your questions that you have asked, and I'm going to ask them to Rob. Um, So um, the first one, Rob, there's a question here. What made Christianity relevant to you after 21 years? Thank you. I could spend all day on this. Can we lock the door? No. Um, uh, But I'm not going to, sadly, as much as I'd love to talk about this. In short, um, that was not the first question I asked. The first question I asked was, was it true? Um, And as I looked into it, I was convinced it was true, both historically, uh, both um, in what the evidence showed me, and also instinctively in what my experience of the world was as well. Um, If you want to find more out on that, if you're particularly interested in me, I don't blame you if you're not, Um, The first talk, uh, so two weeks ago, I answered this question in a bit more detail. It would be worth going to that in the Q&A. Great, great. Thank you very much. Um, Another question here. As a new Christian, what advice do you have for uh, learning except Jesus, especially as someone who didn't... Hold on, it's just moved. As someone who didn't grow up in the church, it seems all very hard to understand, and it isn't always relevant to me. Well, I've got a lot of sympathy for that. I uh, didn't grow up in the church, and for me, it a lot of it was like, what is this about? You know, just praying. Why would I go in a room and sit on my own and speak to myself? Um, why are these people being nice to me? Why am I, yeah, all these <laughs> sorts of things. So um, I've got a lot of sympathy with that. What I would say is um, be honest about that. Ask your questions to others. Why do we do that? Why do we pray? Why do we have the Bible read? Um, these things aren't obvious, and I get that. Um, but also, I think, just make the most of um, just some of the, I'm not trying to do a plug for the courses, but genuinely, I think going on things like Christian Explored and we offer Discipleship Explored, you know, you can go on other courses, that's absolutely fine. We're not the only place that does it. But they're just really helpful, I think, in just hearing from the Bible what are the kind of basics, if you like, what are, what's prayer, um, what does it mean to uh, be forgiven, all those sorts of things. Mm. And of course, you know, that's what Sunday's about. We, we grow uh, as we hear more um, yeah, we're all learning together. Great, thank you. Um, okay, um, this is just a quick one. Jesus had four brothers, so why did he think it necessary for John to make provision for Mary? Uh, thank you. I think they all scarpered, it seems like that. We're told in the other Gospels uh, no one was with him, apart from these two, um, or three or four. Um, and they probably weren't believers, so his family actually pulled Jesus aside and sort of say he's going a bit crazy here. Um, But that's kind of the point, that Jesus redefines the family, not based on blood ties, um, but based on uh, their belief in him and doing uh, and knowing God. So yeah, that would probably be my answer. Great, thank you. Um, And last question, what do you mean we can know Jesus? Thank you. I'll say a little bit more about this next week. And in one sense, that's the question John answers. If you look on the back of this booklet, Um, 
uh, you'll see that these things are written. This is why John writes. These things are written that you may believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And that idea of life there um, captures not just eternal life after we die, but what life looks like in its entirety now, having Jesus as king. Um, So in one sense, read this um, and come back. It's not a quick answer. But I guess it's the difference between knowing about something or knowing about someone and knowing someone personally. Um, Guy Garvey, the lead singer of Elbow, I've never met him. I've been in the same room as him, but so were about three or 4,000 other people. <laughs> and um, I, I, I know about him, but I don't know him personally. To know him personally, he would have to come off the stage and say, Rob, I've heard you've been talking about my song. Let me talk to you about it, uh, that type of thing. Um, and it's a bit like that. See, I probably, um, for a long time, knew there might be a God, there's a case to be made for a God, but I didn't really know that God. And actually, as Jesus comes, he dies for me, he gets us to know him personally. Uh, and actually, it's a lot closer to the way we know a kind of person in this sort of sense. Okay, Jesus is not here physically, uh, but it's a lot closer than we might otherwise think. He speaks to us through his word. Uh, we get to speak to him in prayer. And he says um, in chapter 16 that he gives us his spirit uh, to keep us with him. That's probably all I want to say for now. Great, great. Thank you very much, Rob. Thanks for your questions.